Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm Charlene Chang, Steve's co-host. First, I wanted to thank Steve for letting me open up today's show. Today's episode and its topic is deeply personal to me. We're going to be talking about anti-Asian and anti-Asian American racism. For the past year, we've witnessed a rise in anti-Asian American racism and violence across the nation that has deep roots in U.S. history and is directly tied to the historical and systemic nature of white supremacy. About 3,800 incidents of racist harassment, discrimination, and attacks have been reported to the group Stop AAPI Hate and its reporting center over the past year. And the truth is that many more incidents and attacks have happened and were never reported, and they probably never will be. Pretty much every Asian American AAPI person in this country knows that none of this is new, but it is painful and it is re-traumatizing. I myself have experienced a wide range of racism and racist misogyny my entire life being an Asian American woman in this country, from so-called microaggressions to violent and white terrorism attacks against me and my family when I was a child growing up in the 70s and 80s in suburban New Jersey in a community that was majority white. So yes, the specific nature of how our former so-called leader, former occupant of the White House, had repeatedly referred to the coronavirus as the China virus and the Kung flu, and essentially just fanned the flames of xenophobia, squarely placing the blame for the pandemic on Asian people and people who look Asian. But this type of scapegoating is not new. Racism against us is not new, and the backlash is not new, because he who shall not be named had a very good blueprint, basically the history of this country and how it has treated Asians from the beginning of the founding of our country. And this through line is also known as yellow peril, which we'll be talking about more um, in this episode. Then that brings us to March 16th, most recently. A man went on a rampage and shot and killed eight people at three spas in the Atlanta metro area. Six of those eight people were Asian women. And this horrific massacre became a tipping point. It has sparked a nationwide outcry from the AAPI community and allies to call out anti-Asian racism, hate, and violence Many, many marches and rallies have already been held, and there are many to follow over the next weeks or so, and we will see how long that continues. Um, what I wanted to share today, um, right now, is a personal story. Starting last spring, when news reports began coming out that the rise in attacks on Asian Americans, particularly Asian American elderly people, when those reports started coming out, my mother, who is 79, sorry, mom, for outing your age, <laughs> but she's 79 and she was on a phone call with me and she told me that she and my father were going to stop taking their nightly walks after dinner. That's a ritual that they've pretty much had all of their 53 years since they've moved to this country, this country being the country that they have spent the most time in in their entire life. And it wasn't even because they were afraid to catch COVID while walking, but it was because in their New Jersey community that is largely white and largely has supporters of the former president, they were worried about, about getting harassed and maybe even attacked um, for being Asian. And now, just a week ago after the Atlanta shooting news, my daughter, who is nine, 
who many of you heard me talk about. And um, we definitely tell her a lot about what's going on in the world. She was on a nightly walk with me, and that's our ritual after dinner. She was walking with me and suddenly had this look of panic and said, Mommy, I want to go home. I don't want to walk with you alone. And I'm scared because somebody might come to attack us because we're Asian. And that absolutely just crushed me. And I, I lied to her. I said, we're safe. Um, nothing's going to happen to you. And I say that's a lie because even though we live in Berkeley, California, um, there's no way I can guarantee her with everything's going on right now that as Asian Americans with our faces that we are absolutely safe. So Steve, I'm, I'm looking forward to today's conversation, especially with our special guests. And I may get emotional. It's very, like I said, emotional topic for me, but I am very much looking forward to talking to our special guest who, in addition to being a renowned professor of Asian American studies, is a longtime friend of yours from your college days when the two of you and many others got into some good trouble. I'd like to hear more about that. And would you like to introduce her to our listeners? Yeah, I would. And, and thank you, um, Charlene, for sharing that and, and for being vulnerable and really conveying what I think a lot of people are, are feeling, right? I mean, like I, I had mentioned on Facebook when I tried to put up a solidarity statement that a year ago when the, vi- when the pandemic first started and the shutdown first started, one of my running buddies, uh, Vivian, a Chinese American woman, said she didn't want to go outside. This was in 2020 because she was afraid about anti-Asian attacks. And so that was like eye-opening to me. And then I didn't actually realize about your own family's experience when you were growing up. And it does bring to mind, you know, we were the first black family to move into our our neighborhood in uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Cleveland Heights, Ohio, back in 64. And my mom slept in her clothes the first, you know, few months that we were there because she was afraid of uh, our house being firebombed. Right. And so just really brings that to mind. So I am really glad to get into this conversation today because I think everyone's dealing with this in the country. And so uh, um, it's meaningful to be able to provide some, you know, reflections and analysis um, for our listeners. So let's get into it. And um, yes, our guest is a college friend of mine. I'm not sure she fully appreciates the quote long time emphasis, but it is what it is. And um, the symmetry of this conversation is very on point. Judy and I became friends back in the day when she was a leader in the Asian American student movement at Stanford. And we were fighting to diversify the curriculum at Stanford. And, you know, I'm, you know, I think, well, obviously, as you know, Charlene, I'm working on this new book around the, uh, how we win the Civil War and the showing the Civil War has never stopped and doing a lot of research around different people throughout history, right? And so Leland Stanford was one of the leaders of the whole anti-Asian, Asian exclusion movement within this country. And so it's mm-hmm. a certain mm-hmm. irony mm-hmm. where <laughs> Judy and I connected. And then Judy's actually done a video around some of the study, the struggles we did at Stanford about how that was part of her origin story. And so we'll link to that in the, in the show notes. And she has gone on to become one of the country's leading scholars on Asian American studies. And she was really indispensable uh, to us, Charlie, right? When we were putting together Brown as the New White around resources and guidance, particularly different, you know, the latest scholarship and um, professors who have been writing about Asian American history. And so that was very, very helpful to us. Totally. That's right. Yeah. And so one of the great parts of having college friends on the podcast is that I get a chance to learn what they've been up to in the intervening years, right? So at the risk of missing someone for many accomplishments, let me try to recount the, some of the highlights of her work. Judy is a, currently a professor of Asian American Studies at the University of California, Irvine, and director of the Humanities Center. 
She received her PhD in U.S. history from Stanford and previously taught in my home state of Ohio at Ohio State University. Her first book was a biography of Margaret Jessie Chung, the first American-born Chinese woman doctor. And as someone working on a second book, I am bowing in awe of that word first. The Dr. Chung book has this awesome title, Dr. Mom Chung of the Fair-Haired Bastards, The Life of a Wartime Celebrity. And her current book project is a collaboration with political scientist Gwendolyn Mink and explores the political career of Patsy Takamoto Mink, the first woman of color U.S. congressional representative and the namesake for Title IX, which mandates gender equity for schools that receive federal funding. And if that weren't enough, in addition to raising children and apparently becoming a photographer, uh, populating her Facebook post and playing a lot of tennis, Judy's also working on a book focused on Asian American and Pacific Islander women who attended the 1977 National Women's Conference. And she's co-editor of Women in Social Movements in the United States, 1600 to 2000, and editor of Amerasia Journal. So somebody trying to distill U.S. history from 1865 to now, 1600 to 2000 is a lot of ground. You're slacking. Yes. So I'm sure I've left some some things out, but I think that gives you a, a flavor of the amazing work that Judy's done and her real depth of expertise. And we're just honored um, to have her with us here today. So welcome, Professor Judy Zudring Wu. It's such an honor to be here, Steve. I'm blushing. You can't see me, but I am blushing. <laughs> and um, Charlene, your opening was just so beautiful and powerful. And I think a lot of people I've talked to share what you have described. Um, I teach at UC Irvine. And I remember last year talking to my students as we transitioned to remote teaching and how there was such a fear of what the impact of COVID-19 on their lives, their families' lives. But on top of that, the anxieties and pressures of being targeted racially and the desire to kind of secure themselves within the home because we were managed to do social distancing, but also the fears of being being attacked when they were they were out on the streets. Yeah, so I wanted to start really with this kind of having both of you reflect a little bit, maybe we'll, we'll start with Judy, like what has it been like this past few weeks, just in terms of like, how are you doing personally and how are you processing it? And what's it been like for you in terms of dealing with all the intensity? I think this past few weeks have really been a reflection of the past year. And the past year has been a reflection of a, of a longer history of heightened racial scrutiny. And um, certainly what happened in Atlanta brings to the foreground the anti-Asian American hatred that exists within the broader United States, but it's also part of a broader pattern of asserting white privilege and white rights. I really think about the Black Lives Matter movement, the targeting of Black people, that there's a certain um, privilege that white individuals, especially white men, but also white women, that they feel that they have the right to physically attack to harm, to verbally assault people who are presumed to be outsiders, who are presumed to be lesser than. So I, I definitely feel traumatized by what has happened in Atlanta, but it's building on additional racial forms of trauma that I think we collectively experienced. Charlene, how are you? You touched some on it, but how are yeah, you? Yeah, I did touch on it. I want to um, say that I think uh, what I can reflect back on is you Many of us Asian Americans were following the news since last spring. For myself, there was a mixture of 
you know, trauma and shock, but also this is not surprising, right? Because we saw the fact that I knew that the reporting of the first cases came from China. It's almost like by the time I realized that it was going to be a global pandemic. Yeah, I remember I, you raising that at the time. I was like, actually. just this is coming, you know? And then, I, and then I had to steal myself from the news because the visceral pain of seeing elders is it was primarily elders that really made attacks against elders that made headlines. It was too much to bear, right? And then my parents saying they don't want to walk again. So I'm, I buried myself into what I call the fog of pandemic, which was already the very challenging, already traumatic experience of having to be working parents, with a child at home doing distance, like that was, you know, many people were already going through that very dramatic change in their lives. And that was enough on my plate. And I, I basically, you know, I had to shut it out. I had to almost split myself and not engage with that news. I'll tell you, there's so many things that were on my feed. And I, I said, I'm, I, I know you and I have talked about this, Steve, for example, in cases of, um, you know, black lives being taken and like not engaging with the imagery and videos and news of yeah. um, the attacks on our humanity and our bodies. But it was something that, you know, after March 16th, Atlanta, there was a breaking point. And I think that happened for a lot of us. I went into, I was, I was numb at first and then I was just mad. Like it was like all of the stuff from my childhood, you know, everything just came up. And I said, I did then, I'll talk about this more lately Then shift into like, what can I do? I want to right. focus on making change. And there, I, I am very heartened by how many people are doing that now. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I it's, it does get overwhelming and too much to bear. Right. And like, and like, and it's, you know, it's notable, right. That we're having this conversation as the trial is beginning of the cop who killed George Floyd. Right. And so a lot of people, my friends putting on Facebook, they can't even watch the trial. Right. And it's I'm just sure. like, are we really going to sit here and debate no whether it is okay for this man his knee in this black man's neck and kill him and that with it that fact that it might be determined to be okay right it's just exactly it really because of the history of this country yeah one of the cases that's been discussed in relation to what happened in atlanta is vincent chen and yes. he was someone who was murdered in 1982 by two out of work white male auto workers and um, they did not spend time in prison mm. they were fined three thousand dollars and there's a great film about that case it's called who killed vincent shin mm. because it's clear who actually did it but it was the legal system that reinforced that it was acceptable for those killings to occur and i think that's exactly what you're talking about now judy i believe the judge's words and you correct me if i'm wrong you're the expert the judge's words in the vincent chin um decision where these white men do not belong in jail there was definitely a sense of some, some that's that sentiment yeah, yeah. no that's right that's, i mean so i was just going to say the judge was in sympathy of the perpetrators right. of the violence yeah. and i think there's similarities with the sheriff the spokesperson who said well this person who shot the eight individuals in Atlanta, he was having a bad day. Bad day. Like, there's all these justifications for the people who perpetrated violence, not right. for the people who suffered violence. Yeah. Yeah. Now that was the, that was that, the, that was part of the activism at the time when, you know, Judy and I were coming of age, right. That after Vincent Chin and then when Jesse Jackson ran for president, like Mabel Tang talks about it. He was the one presidential candidate who went and met with Vincent Chin's parents. Um, and really tried to, you know, offer support and shine a light on that on that struggle. Um, and so that's kind of what I wanted to ask you, Judy, because there's this this is this is all in a context of a, you know, long history of attacks. 
But the other part of the long history is a long history of resistance and of different people who have taken up their positions to be able to advance the cause and the struggle. So I wonder if you could just share with our listeners a little about a little bit about your own journey, right? So we met when we were college student activists and you were a leader in the Asian American student movement at the, at the, in college. But then you've gone on to become a scholar in Asian American studies, to write books on different people. So can you talk a little bit about your own motivations and thought process around the various kind of these career decisions that you made? When I think about who I am, I think the defining moment for me was that movement that we were involved in, Steve, at Stanford. And I was not an activist or a movement leader at the time, but I became one because of what we were doing collectively. I remember there were these racialized attacks against Ujamaa, which was the black theme dorm at Stanford. And anybody could look there. You can go there and learn about Black history and culture. But there were some people who did not agree that it should exist. And so they scrawled the N-word on flyers. Mm. Um, They drew these caricatures of what supposedly what Black people look like. And I just remember being so outraged that I thought at a university, this is not what I what I signed up for. I want to come here and I want to learn about people's histories and cultures and and learn together as a community. And one thing that really struck me, I remember at the time, was that there was a counter protest to our protests. And I think it was a fraternity that showed up with these white hockey masks and torches, which evoked the image of the KKK. Wow. So this is 1988-89. But unfortunately in, those incidents in that and fill out that story. So yes there was this inward piece and we had protested and then they came with these masks and uh, either like, you know, torches It totally invoked the KKK and it was near Wilbur dorm. And so what some of us did is we called our friends in the black student union and different people at Ujima. And so a whole bunch of black folks came and surrounded these people and freaked them out. And then they <laughs> took off and left, actually, which is like is also part of the indelible, indelible memory of that whole experience. That's great, Steve. I don't remember that detail. So that's fantastic that you're able to share that. I, I just think about those encounters at a quote unquote civilized place like Stanford, a very elite educational institution. And I think those types of encounters are happening throughout the United States. And this is something that happened 30 some years ago. Um, and we're still having those types of events um, or incidents on college campuses in our neighborhoods that this country has not been able to reckon with this history of white supremacy and racial hatred exclusion. And so these events keep on reoccurring. But it's that incident and then our collective response, being able to mobilize, being able to organize, and to channel that anger into something productive, right? a call for student centers that really thought about the needs of marginalized students, people, students of color, to try to create a home for them on campus, that we need to change the curriculum, that if we can offer a different understanding of this nation's past and our present and our future, that we can potentially change the mindset of students, that that movement really shaped who I became and the type of projects and interests that I, that I continue to have. When you went to college, did you think you were going to become a professor? No, no. I immigrated with my family in 1975. And one thing that really resonates with me as I learn more about the people who, who died is that we ran you know, mom and pop businesses. We had a convenience store. We had a restaurant. 
and it was all hands on deck, you know, everybody in the family contributing their labor because there wasn't that much in terms of cash resources. So you exploited yourselves in order to make a living. I remember my parents, I think like many other Asian immigrant parents had aspirations for success for, for me. And that involved being a doctor. And if that wasn't possible, maybe <laughs> being a lawyer, I hear um, you. Maybe, in, <laughs> maybe an engineer. So I, I don't, know what I wanted to become when I went to college, but I didn't actually want those paths for me. So I was an English major for a while, then I was an American studies major. So that allowed me to take ethnic studies courses. And eventually I decided that I wanted to be a professor, that I wanted to do research and to uncover um, these these hidden paths that we haven't been able to recognize and to, to celebrate. Can I ask you a quick, quick uh, question? Where did you immigrate from? I was born in Taiwan, but my family had was part of that mass Locate, relocation from mainland China mm-hmm. um, with the communist takeover in 1949 to Taiwan and then eventually to the United States. That's interesting. That's my family's background. That My parents were born in China, but raised in Taiwan. I was born here, but they were part of that generation. When did you come to the United States? Or when did your family come to the United um, States? My parents came as graduate students. They met in grad school in Missouri in, I want to say, the mid to late 60s, um, maybe 66 right after the basically the Immigration Nationalization Act and the lifting of immigration bans. It, well, in terms of your story, Sarlene, you, you actually wrote back in 2015 um, this piece for the online publication Ozzy about some of your experiences growing up. Do you want to kind of highlight what that is? And we'll link to the piece itself in the, in the show notes. Yeah, that piece I wrote when Fresh Off the Boat first aired. It was the first show featuring Asian-American cast in t- uh, about 25 years. And there was a scene in there where the young protagonist was called a chink for the first time. And it really um, triggered me, but brought up a lot of memories. Um, Speaking of Taiwan, Judy, I was my parents reverse parachute kidded me uh, when I was nine. They sent me back to Taiwan to live with my relatives and attend school there to learn the language and learn my my roots, learn my identity and be um, with the family and my culture. And it was a really profound experience. When I came back to fifth grade, prior to then, I had not really experienced blatant racism from my peers, but it was, uh, I have, I still to this day don't really know what happened, but including kids who had been my friends, but some new kids in the school, it's like they suddenly discovered I was Asian, um, the school was majority white, and they just went on this rampage of a racist bullying campaign against me. Wow. And so I was called Ching um, almost every day. It was primarily boys. They tried to do karate chops on me and would, would just kick me, right? They would practice and make, thought it was hilarious to do karate on me. And there was a lot of go back, go back to China because they were too ignorant to A, know that I was born here, but also they knew I came, quote unquote, came back from somewhere. They knew I had gone to Asia and come, come back to the school. So it was, you know, it was a painful time. One of the scariest things that happened, and I tell this story because people think that some of these kind of incidents happened to people of color a longer time ago and don't necessarily happen to Asians. But when I came back, I was in fifth grade and in sixth grade, and the two mischief nights in a row, uh, a mischief night is in some parts of the country in New Jersey, it's the night before Halloween, and kids usually do pretty benign tricks like throw toilet paper into trees and soap windows. I don't know if you guys had that where you grew up. But two mischief nights in a row, somebody, and I'm assuming it was kids from school, had soaked toilet paper in gasoline and Jesus. threw them into our pine trees. Oh, my God. And twice we nearly could have had our house burned down if not for 
neighbors who helped and fire departments came out. So that was actually some memories I had suppressed mm-hmm. for most of my adult life. My parents to this day still say it was a prank on Ron. They don't think it was racist. They don't mm-hmm. consi- for certainly don't consider it white terrorism. But now I have a much more clear understanding. And so when things that happened this year brought a lot of that up, yeah, that was it was just re-traumatizing. And I, as a young kid and teen, really resented being Asian. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of internalized hate, wanted to be white. I have a essay in Aussie called I Try to Being White about a Mohawk gone wrong and uh, really, really wanted to be white, wanted to have nothing to do with Asians and tried so much to convince myself that if I bleached my hair and hung out only with white kids, I could be just like white. And so my awakening to being proud of being a woman of color, Asian American woman came pretty late, um, believe it or not, in my in my early 30s. So this has been quite the journey for me. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting as you're saying that that it reminds me of you know we keep having these you know periods in history, right, or dang history in the past several years that where I, I both our eyes get opened and those people, those of us who are not from that group, our eyes get really open, right? So it happened a lot with me too, right, in terms of like people sharing their stories. And it's like, oh my god, I, you know, as a man, I was like, oh my god, I had no idea that the extensiveness um, of what people experienced. And then I think similarly last year around the post George Floyd killing racial reckoning is like all these experiences around dealing with racism and that and now we're having this Asian American moment, which makes me also think about there was a, um, our friend Tram Nguyen um, in uh, Virginia, New Virginia Majority is a good podcast interview with her on the Great Battlefield podcast. And we should link to that as well, where she talks about her story and growing up. And then similarly, as you were saying, she, her family when she was a child in Virginia, would go to this, you know, pool. They get they get into a pool, and the other kids would yell "chinks in the pool" and get out of the pool. Mm. And then Tram's like not even forty, right? And so this is like the experience of the recency of it's all really recent. Mm-hmm. So, so I do want to put this in context, Judy. And so you know, you started to touch on it, and um, but you know, so we were saying that these attacks are not new, right? Going from the you know the Chinese Exclusion Act back in the uh, 1800s, Japanese internment, right? You know, official. It was interesting with the internment. Is I used to feel like I couldn't comprehend how the country could just round up people and put them into camps. And then in 2015, and then in Trump, and then I was all like, yeah, I can actually see this now. Actually, I began to first see it after the. Uh, after the uh, Gulf War, back in uh, um, all the attacks on you know Muslims and Arabs and whatnot, so Judy, as you reflect on this moment, the past few weeks, the past few years, can you try to put this in more historical context around this country's treatment and relationship to the Asian community? It's a really great question. It's a really big question. I, I think the ways in which Asian Americans have been racialized, maybe initially sequential, but actually overlapping ways is one perpetual foreigner. And Charlene mentioned this in terms of the yellow peril imagery, this idea that if you're from Asia, or you look Asian, that you're somehow inherently not of this country. And it's something that people encounter on a day-to-day basis. Um, they might ask where you're from, or how did you learn to speak English so well? But those attitudes have a long history going back at least to the mid-19th century with the large arrival of immigrants from Asia, the ways in which they're perceived as taking away jobs and resources from Americans, even though the so-called Americans can also themselves be recent arrivals from Europe. 
Um, But there's a sense of racialized economic competition against Asian immigrants. And it's not just a a sentiment. Um, It became a political movement. It was also legalized. So we have a series of exclusion laws as part of this U.S. this country's history. 1875 Page Law, 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act. For each of those acts, it's really trying to target Asian laborers from exclusion and also reaffirming that even if you're in this country for long periods of time, that you can never become a U.S. citizen. Those are kind of the central ways in which Asian immigrants, as well as American-born children, have been regarded, right? They're perpetual foreigners. And Japanese American internment is one instance of the one manifestation of that attitude. You, you touched the thing about citizenship. So I actually wondered maybe if you could, that was one of the things I was quite surprised to learn I was researching my book was how the Supreme Court of the United States has actually explicitly said, you know, that Asians couldn't be couldn't be citizens. Can you talk a little bit about about that? On last last Friday, there was a stop API hate day, and it commemorated the 1790 Naturalization Act, Hmm. in which citizenship reserved for white free individuals, right? And this is the context of American slavery. This is the context of um, U.S. imperialism, colonialism in this country. And the only people who could be naturalized were basically European immigrants and particularly men. So that was already part of the legal structure. But when Chinese and Japanese and other immigrants started coming to this country, there was some question about how they would be racially categorized. But overall, the answer has been that they're non-white. So in 1922, an individual, a Japanese individual, argued that he was as American as can be. He wore Western clothing. He went to a Christian church. He spoke English. Um, and the Supreme Court said, well, you can be as you know American in habit and culture, but you're not racially eligible for U.S. citizenship. A follow-up case the next year by a South Asian individual, and ironically, at the time, South Asians linguistically, anthropologically, were considered Caucasian. And the individual argued, in addition to having military service for the United States during World War I, that there was a scientific basis for South Asians to be considered white. And the Supreme Court said, you know, I look at you and I can tell, right, a common man understanding, I can tell you're not white. Wow. And so you also are not eligible for citizenship. So that racial line was drawn very explicitly around issues of citizenship. My understanding is that the very first immigration ban, and correct me if I'm wrong, was based on the hypersexualization and exotification of Chinese women who were coming during the time when the migrant Chinese men were coming over as workers. And a recent Stop AAPI hate report released in March found that Asian American women reported hate crimes 2.3 times more than men. And of those killed in Atlanta, six were, as I'd mentioned, Asian women, two were Chinese of Chinese descent and four were of Korean descent. I know myself personally, there the, the kinds of experiences that I've had, like that's why I mentioned the racist misogyny. There's just so many incidents of harassment where I know specifically that the things that have been said to me and the way I've been treated are tightly interwoven between both how I'm being seen as my, my identity as my race and gender. So can you talk about what role gender plays in racialized violence against Asian Americans? When I think about the sheriff representative's comment that this is not about race, it's about sexuality. I think in this country, it's incredibly difficult to separate the two of them. The ways in which Asian American women, Black women, Black men, white men, the ways in which race has really been defined and shaped by sexuality. 
So one of the earliest exclusion laws that were passed is in 1875, the Page Law. And in the aftermath of the Civil War and the, uh, the era of emancipation, there was concern about unfree forms of labor. And so part of that law was trying to prevent contract laborers from coming into the country so that they might provide labor for less money than people who could be employed in the United States. But also part of the law was trying to prevent immigration of women for lewd or immoral purposes. And the presumption is that if you're an Asian woman coming to the United States, that your primary purpose is for prostitution. Um, so it set up this apparatus in which those um, people who were evaluating immigrants, they had to determine whether a woman was in fact a prostitute or not. But the presumption is that Asian women were prostitutes. And so she had to prove otherwise in order to gain entry to the United States. I think that nexus of race and sexuality has been in this country for a long time. If you think about the representations of Asian women in Hollywood, the dragon lady imagery, the geisha imagery, the China doll imagery. And that imagery really escalates, especially in the post-World War II era, when the United States creates a, a ring of military bases throughout the world to fight the Cold War, but especially in Asia, since that's one of the hot spots of the Cold War. So you think about military bases in South Korea, in Taiwan, in Japan, in the Philippines, in Vietnam, all those locations in which there's not just the establishment of a military base, but also red light districts are in our stations in which Asian women provide the sexual and intimate labor to um, service like, US military men abroad. Those things don't just stay abroad, but they also come to the United States. It comes in terms of fantasies about Asian women it also comes in terms of migration, um, thinking about which occupations Asian women are more likely to be able to access once they're in the United States. Yes, and I, I just want to say also thank you, Hollywood and popular culture, right? So on one hand, we're very invisible in popular culture and media, um, not just Asian women, but Asian men. But let's just talk about how Asian women have been portrayed in movies, TV shows, not not including, you know, up until recently, it's getting a little bit better. But in terms of what I grew up with, a lot of imagery of Asian women being uh, hypersexualized, portrayed as objects um, and uh, prostitutes, essentially. So that right. all reinforces that negative yeah. that stereotype. We were talking, like Charlene, about the Fresh Off the Boat, right? It was the first, you know, again, Judy, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but the, the first uh, Asian American focused television show, and I believe it was certainly 20 years, not 25 years. Prior one had been Margaret Cho's show. That's right, um, All American Girl. Yes, which was canceled because that they thought she was too overweight. Mm -hmm. And not only was it canceled because of that, then it was replaced with Drew Carey, an overweight, oh, white, God. overweight white guy. Because. <laughs> right. So you've got that level. Mm -hmm. And then as you were, as you know, Judy was talking, it's just making me think about the historical connections around this the intersection of the racism and the, the sexualization of it. Right. So then much of the justification for a lot of the brutality against African-Americans and kind of most famously, in some ways, the whole, you know, the basically lynching of Emmett Till in Mississippi back in, in, the, in the 50s was because they, he allegedly had either, you know, raped or whistled at a, a white mm. woman. Right. So, mm -hmm. the, so all the way back, I was reading yesterday and I was just researching about this, the black codes, the slave codes, even the 1600s were about protecting white women. From black men, right? So you take that, and then this morning, well, you know, Shirley, my I do, I go down these research rabbit holes, and I'm like, this is amazing. That 
Trump's popularity before he did that first press conference was at 2% in one poll and 4% in another poll. He does a press conference where he calls Mexicans rapist. His support mm. went up 500%. Mm, so there's been this whole connection here. So um, I want to move and just turn to that and mindful of the time um, that if we could talk a little bit about what to do and where we go from here. And then I know that Charlene, you were talking about there being a lot of, you know, uh, resurgence of activism um, or, you know, the, uh, and so can you talk a little bit about particularly what you're seeing in your school community? Though there's been a whole manifestation there around trying to push the school district to be better upon these types of issues. Uh, yes, Stephen, you guys became activists in your college years. I'm like a really late bloomer. I literally <laughs> just last week became activated in my very middle-aged status. Um, like I said before, there's, you know, on the flip side, when there, whether there's darkness, there's light. And uh, I am very excited about what I am seeing now. Um, for the first time in my life, a sort of nationwide activated movement of AAPI around the country and their allies calling out anti-Asian racism, but also drawing a lot of attention to our history and our humanity in a way that I've just never seen. So I am fully in it, stirring it up. Last week, our school district leaders still had not said anything in terms of all the incidents, not and then about Atlanta shooting. When they came out with something, it was very subpar. It was buried in a general email. And a number of us parents, primarily women, moms who are Asian American, just said, you know, we had it. And so we put together a letter, we gathered 400 signatures in 48 hours, demanding that the superintendent and school board members do better, come out with a real one, really meaningful, standalone statement in solidarity with us, and for them to start putting together a plan on how they're going to do better, how they're going to get teachers to talk to students about it, help our community feel more safe. But also going forward, you know, talking about how you guys had the demands during your college years for ethnic studies, going forward, how do we pressure and put the responsibility back on educational systems to say the only way that children will learn about Asian anti-Asian racism is to also learn the history of Asian Americans. And so we are now part of a conversation with them about a K to 12 ethnic curriculum, ethnic studies curriculum, but also all sorts of opportunities for people in our community to learn about anti-Asian racism and how to be allies and stand up for us. So it is, it is very exciting. And I feel I'm just out there. I'm going to go to protests. I'm, I've been invited to speak at one. It's like, I don't know who I am. Quite the power, Charlene. <laughs> So I was, and there's, there's an article, right? It's out recently about the what you guys have been doing. Oh Berkeley yeah, I totally well. went to the media, and you know, yeah, I, I so jacked them up, we'll and they 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 immediately responded. And what I've been teaching my right. daughter is, it really just takes one or two people to get something started, yeah. and a movement is that's how it gets started. Organizing, yeah. everybody can do it. Right. So Judy, I want to curious because you're a professor now, and there's lots of students look to you, and I mean, it's not ironic, but interesting in terms of the arc, right? So one of the founding struggles we were part of right, is the whole issue around the pushing the university to higher Asian American studies. So students took over the president's office. And to this day, it was 1989. I'll never forget that one of the chants was, what do we want? Asian American history professor, one, just one <laughs> Asian American history <laughs> professor. Right. So that was back in that day. So, but 
in this time, do you see students come to you, people look to you to what to do? What, what kind of advice are you giving them around what we can kind of do to try to push back and fight back against what we're facing? I would just like to say that I've been in touch with some of the alumni from Stanford. And unfortunately, it's still such a small number of professors hmm. at, our, at our former school who are doing work about Asian American studies. So hopefully- but We have one. We do, yes. So <laughs> hopefully Stanford will see the light and realize that we need more than one. Um, I think our interpretation of what is happening in the country is really important to have alternative voices frame the issues. And I think that has to do with research and teaching. So I think that is really important. I think we need to inspire our students I was planning to attend an event that um, my students had organized. They were, they've been documenting COVID-19 and its impact on Asian American Pacific Islander communities through photo voice. So through using photography and through storytelling. But the day that our program was supposed to happen was the day that day after Atlanta. And so we turned it into a listening session instead and a circle of healing. And I was so moved by the students some of whom felt despair. You know, they're trying to make plans for their future. They're studying hard for different tests. And then feeling a sense of hopelessness, you know, is something really going to change? Um, and so I think it's important for us to talk to our students, to talk to our youth, to continue to empower them. Um, and that's what's been so um, wonderful to be able to do research on kick-ass activist API women in the past Ooh. and to show them as role models that we do not just have a history of imitating whiteness, that we don't just have the That's history right. of being quiet, That's that right. we have a long legacy of people advocating for social justice and change. Um, in fact, I just spoke to a middle school yesterday about Patsy Mink. I wasn't quite sure how the students would react, but I, I loved what they said afterwards, like what were the lessons they want to take away. And I emphasize it's a long struggle Right? We're not going to win all the victories, but it's really important for us to insert our voice and to keep trying, regardless of how tenacious right, these structures of inequality and violence are. It's so important for us to always be there to provide alternative perspectives. And then finally, I think this country just needs a complete rethinking about race, about indigeneity, but about immigration, especially. Mm. I think about the children who were removed from their families and put into jails, right? I think about the people who continue to arrive because they're, they're trying to find security, they're trying to find safety. And instead, what we're doing is reinforcing the sense of trauma. And, and I think all these issues are connected with what we're, we're trying to move towards in terms of building a more just society. Absolutely. Right. When you, what's the timing of your book on Patsy Mink? I'm hoping next March, Women's History Month. Okay. Also, it's the 50th anniversary of Title IX, and mm. Patsy Mink was a big advocate and the namesake for the, the legislation. All right. Looking forward to it. It's great to be in conversation with all of you. Yeah, well, we really appreciate you making the time, Judy. So it's, uh, you know, it's an important moment, and unfortunately, you know, this context that brings it all together, but we really, you know, we, we appreciate the chance to lift up your work and to, and to have this conversation. So Judy, absolutely. It's people like you out there just give me hope. My, you know, I have a multiracial Asian daughter and 
just Asian American women like yourself who have done all this work already that I'm just now jumping on the bandwagon, you know, but just all, all just the, your expertise and all the work you've done and all your books. It's just so invaluable to our society and our community. I think it's never too late to be an activist. And also, I think what I do is very much in community with other incredibly powerful individuals. I think that's something that was a takeaway for me as well from Stanford is that if we work together collectively, we can we can make big changes. Um, and I think there's been a long legacy of activist aunties in all of our communities. So I think we can we can really look up to them. You're here, here to the all activist right. aunties. All right. I think it's a good moment to wrap on. So um, it's all the time we have for today. I want to thank our uh, very special guest, Professor Judy Wu. We also encourage you to check out the website, stopaapihate.org, to learn more about how to fight anti-Asian racism and show up as allies. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcast, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or signing up for our mailing list at democracyincolor.com. If you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. We'd like to thank Denver Farm Girl and Abby Hella Strong for their recent reviews. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier, recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio San Francisco. As we sign off, I am mindful of our friend Emmy Gusakuma's Facebook post after the Atlanta attacks, where she posted a picture with a line drawn through the words, stop Asian hate. And those words were replaced with stop white terrorism. Until next time, keep the faith.